0: It, it's amazing that we made it. We made it to this program. And there are hundreds of thousands out there who are dying tonight because they don't know or they cannot or they will not walk through the doors to an AA or an Allen So I'm, I thank God for you and for me tonight that we're here. You're beautiful. Neil did not decide as a youngster that when he grew up he wanted to be an alcoholic and lose his family and his friends and his jobs and end up in prison. That was not his intent. Somewhere along the way he lost the power to choose what his life would be. He could not have done differently. And so I started going to AA meetings with Neil, and this was back in 1958. And I thought the program was just absolutely wonderful for those who needed it. And I would filter everything through my ears, and I was hoping that he was li- he was listening to the speaker. And you know what? I've been I've done that just recently. I've taken a a newcomer to a meeting, and I will sit in the meeting and. Listen for that newcomer, hoping that what whoever is speaking or whoever the chairman is has the right kind of program for says the right thing that the she or he needs to hear. Done the same thing, but you see, I can't hear for another person. So, we went to meetings for a while, and I loved them, and I thought they were great. And we one night we looked around the meeting, and there were some sick alimones or sick spouses of alcoholics at that time, and I thought they really needed some help. And then what we needed to do was to start an alarm group, and uh, you can tell how sick we all were because they let me be chairman the first five years.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I would I would call around during the week and find out what their problem was, and then I'd center the Friday night program around their problem. <laughs>
1: but in
0: 1964, we had gone to a convention down in Little Rock, and. Her heard a speaker by the name of Gert and some of you may remember. And I don't know what Gert said that day, but it, it she said something that made me know that there was something in this program for me. So I went back home and I started to, to work the steps and to become serious about the program. And I, I, I knew that, for number one, that alcoholism is a fatal illness, self-diagnosed and self-treated. The second thing I, I heard when I could hear is that I cannot keep the alcoholic from drinking if he should decide to drink. I cannot, neither can I provide him with the spiritual fitness he needs to stay sober. I am powerless. The third thing that I, I le- learned when I started to hear is the things that I must do for myself in the Anonymous Program and the 12 steps. To help me to be the kind of person that I, I want to live with, that my God wants me to be, and that I'd want to come home to. And so I started looking at the 12 steps, and step one is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol calm that our lives had become unmanageable. Right off, I changed that, I'm powerless, and my life is unmanageable. I'm not only powerless over alcohol and the effects of alcoholics and whatever. I'm powerless over people and places and conditions. I'm also powerless over me. And when I think that I have power, my life becomes unmanageable. Step two is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And I had believed there was a creator. I was raised up in Kansas, and i looked at the wheat fields, and they were just beautiful. And I knew that something had to plant the seeds and make it grow. I knew that something had hung the stars in space, but I didn't really believe there was someone for me. Because my life was built on self-will run riot. I'll do it myself, thank you. I don't need any help. I can manage very well. And so I don't know when it was, but I, I looked around at the, the, the ones in the group, and the, they seemed to have something that I wanted. I think it was called Peace, capital I-T. And so my prayer at that time was, God, help me to want to believe in you for me. And somewhere along the way, there came some something or someone to whom I could turn, make the decision to turn over my life and will. Now, I'm 100% on making the decision. And those are, those, I take the first three steps before I get out of bed in the morning. I'm powerless. I know that there is a power that can bring order to my day, and I make a decision. You see, I've always wanted to be 100%. I've always wanted to be at the top of the class. I wanted to make straight A's. and, you, and I've only learned in the last few years that that's an ego trip. It seems like there is inside of me something that's, that's perfect. But there are layers and layers and layers of ego that surround this little place inside me. Kind of like the tulip bulb. In the tulip, inside that tulip bulb, there's a tulip somewhere that's perfect. But there are layers and layers that surround it. And little by little, I, I chip away at this ungodly ego. That keeps me from being that which I already am. See, powerful ego. I several years ago I took the big book, and every place that said alcohol, I put the word ego, and it reads beautifully. It spoke to me. So I make the decision. Step four is made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And I thought step four was really put in the I on program for filler.
1: <laughs>
0: they really didn't mean that we needed to take an inventory. So I was in the program nine years before I took my first inventory.
1: <laughs>
0: and I only did it so I could go to the Friday night meeting and tell the gang that I'd taken my inventory.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it really didn't amount to much, but it kind of was a starting place for me. But I started looking at depression, because that seemed to be the thing that I was most powerless over. And I found out some things about depression in the last 15 or 20 years. I find that I become depressed when something isn't going my way, or someone isn't acting the way I think they ought to act. I get depressed when I have done something I haven't liked myself for, and it's called guilt. I get depressed when I start thinking that answers depend on me. I have to figure it out, or him out, or them out, or me out. And you see there's no answer to those questions. I get depressed when I start looking into the future. It's called fear. I also get depressed when I I feel like I don't have any choices. It's not real, there are always choices. But I feel trapped. It's called repressed hostility. <sighs> I also get depressed when I get physically, mentally, or emotionally tired. I haven't learned to pace myself very much. My enthusiasm writes checks that my body can't cash. <laughs> <laughs> So I end up in bed with the covers pulled up over my head, wanting to die. Don't want to answer the phone, don't want to answer the doorbell, don't want to see anybody. Just want to die. It's too tough. One out. But I'm learning to, to be a little bit better at pacing myself, so I don't get that way. So I put all these things in my computer and it comes out emotionally immature. And we have a do-it-yourself kit called the Twelve Steps that allow Donna Lancaster to grow up emotionally and spiritually if she chooses to. Step five is admitted to God to ourselves and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. I have someone that helps me to grow up. And I also have a little thing that I use and for me or someone that would like to use it. I have seven things I can do. I do every day, and I'm, I'm usually consistent about it. Number one, I take the first three steps when I get out of, before I get out of bed in the morning. Number two, I spend five minutes just being still. Now that's really more difficult than it sounds like. Just sit still for five minutes. And then I'll read something that's appropriate for me that day. Maybe uh, one day at a time, or some piece of literature, whatever, whatever, speaking to me at that time. Fourth thing I do is to make one contact a day with a member. Just say, how are you? Don't have to go into all the bloody details. Just how you doing? Fine. Have a nice day. Just make a contact. Then I I think sixth thing, go to as many meetings as I can go to. Because, you see, I get healed at meetings. I don't care what it is that I walk into a meeting with. Whatever it is that I have allowed to become important in my life and has caused me to be upset or stressed, the minute I walk into a meeting room, it's gone. It's like that. It's magic. There's something special in a meeting and it's it's intangible. I can't even feel it. It's a, a... that is in... Everybody there that heals me and makes me whole. And yet there are times that I deny myself the privilege of going to a meeting for the healing because I am too busy or too tired or just plain don't want to go tonight. And I am the one who loses. The seventh thing I do is to look in the mirror and look myself in the eyes and say, Donna Lancaster... I love you. I appreciate you. I'm grateful for the opportunity of expressing life through you. And hold my eyes in the mirror. Sometimes hard to do. And if I will do those seven things on a daily basis, you know, it works. It works for me. Step six is we're entirely ready. Made a made a list. list pardon me. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Of course, these are the defects that I found in the fourth step. And I thought that I could uh, change me. And all I had to do is just make up my mind. You know, I've done that all my life. I just made up my mind and did it. But you see, this is the easier, softer way. All I have to do is become willing. And God does it for me. Step seven is to ask God to remove our shortcomings. And I have the same consistent shortcomings that seem to just kind of float in and out of my life. They're always always there, and sometimes in lesser or greater degrees. Um, I have self pity on a regular basis. It's it used to be chronic. It's now just I have acute self pity. <laughs> And I can always, um, uh, there's a little red flag that goes up that clues me into when I'm feeling sorry for myself. Because I will start telling you what a tough time I'm having. And it may be that the neighbor's dogs barked all night, or you may say you've got on a beautiful coat. I just got out of layaway, I tell you. You know, it's really tough. Or I may just go to work in the afternoon without putting on my lipstick, so you know how tired and overworked I am.
1: Or it may be you say,
0: how are you? And I won't come out, right out and say it, but by the tone in my voice, there's a very subtle inflection that says, fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: self-pity. And I can't stand it in other people.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: I can just spot it just like that in someone else. So I'm really, really becoming aware of that, and I want to be free of it. Because I, I, in the end, I do want some friends left. I also have, um, I, I notice that when I refuse to judge, that I don't have anger or resentment. Because anger and resentment are the result of a, a judgment that I have laid on somebody or something.
1: <coughs>
0: and uh, I found out several years ago, and I'm not all—I'm not there yet, friends, that um, you're doing the best you can do with the light you have to see by right now. And the reason I know that is because I do the best I know how to do at this moment with the light I have to see by. It may not be that which I'm potentially capable of doing. I fall short of that many t- most of the time. But at this moment with a the willingness, there are times I plain don't want to do any better. The, the knowledge, the experience, the wisdom, whatever it is, I'm really doing the best I can do. And if I know that about me, it's true about you too. But you see, I forget to remember that and I lay a judgment on you. And then I become angry, and I become resentful. So I'm working on that one. I also found that alcoholics are very crafty about uh, throwing guilt around. But Al-Anons are even more more crafty. Because I would catch myself cleaning out the garage when I knew the person that I had asked to clean out the garage would catch me cleaning out the garage. projecting guilt and if I throw guilt around I can't love that person at the same time guilt throws a wall down between me and other people and you better believe if someone's throwing guilt at me I run I don't want to be around that person I don't like it and yet I do it to other people and so I'm working on that one too I also find that I still blame other people when things go wrong. Several years ago, Neil and I had gone to a convention, and he asked me to press his jacket, which I did, and I thought, well, I have the iron. I'll just iron the collar of my dress, and I did, and the whole collar burned out. And if he hadn't asked me to press his jacket, I wouldn't have burned my collar.
1: <laughs>
0: but it's just like that. And I look for someone to blame when things go wrong. But these are defects of character that I, I only ask God to remove. All I can do is to be aware of them. And little by little, the ego that surrounds us is chipped away. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends of them all. Made a list of people I didn't like and why I didn't like them. and then I put my name at the top of the list the list of the reasons why I didn't like them and they were all in right here right inside of me and I made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others and you see the first
1: three steps
0: get me right with God and the next four steps get me right with me and the next two steps get me right with you And now I can start living, which has continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong properly, admitted it. I'm learning to say I'm sorry, even when I'm not wrong. (laughs) No, it's easy to say I'm sorry when I'm wrong. And I thought, well, I don't mind saying wrong. I don't mind saying that. But by golly, I'm not going to say I'm sorry when I'm right. That's ego. And if my ego keeps me from healing, the healing that could take place in a relationship, boy, that's that's pretty powerful ego. And if saying I'm sorry makes it okay, regardless of who's wrong, I I want to be willing to do that. I can also say you may be right. I don't come right out and say you're right. I qualify it.
1: <laughs> you may be
0: right. And usually that's the end of it. And I can still know inside, my lo- in, inside me that I, I know I'm right. But I don't, have to, I don't have to make a big deal out of it, say. And prove to you that I'm right. doesn't matter. That's ego. I can also say I like you. I love you, you're fun to be around. I like who you are, and you sure couldn't say those things. I'm learning that no one is responsible for my attitude. Nobody can make me angry or resentful or feel sorry for myself without my permission. My attitude is not contingent on the people or circumstances around me. Neither am I responsible for someone else's attitude. It's called freedom, friends. There's also a responsibility that goes with it because I am responsible. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. Praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. The first word is sought. I thought that I could just kind of flit in and out of meetings and a spiritualist awakening would descend on my shoulder and I'd walk into the sunset whole and free forever. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. I wanted to get it all fixed. I wanted to know what was going to happen and... I want to know what to believe, and I want to know this, and I want to get, and put a nice big yellow bow on it and say, this is it. You see, it doesn't work that way. I have to work at, diligently and with effort at establishing a conscious contact with God as I understand him, and my understanding changes. is that great? My understanding of God has changed in the last 24 years twenty-five years now that I've been in the program it's amazing you see there is a an invisible and intangible presence that lives in each one of us I can't explain it I can't take a course in it I can't go to a seminar and learn about it can't read a book it's something that's inside you and inside me that's experienceable It's called life. And I see it in every pair of eyes and every smile and every handshake. And that's what's in those meetings that makes me whole. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to others and practice these principles in all of our affairs. That's what's happening to, to you and me. We are having a spiritual awakening, or you wouldn't be here this weekend. There's a hunger inside of you for something, or you wouldn't, you wouldn't have come this weekend, and I wouldn't be here either. So we are having a spiritual awakening, friends. When anything goes wrong in my life, I know that the answer is in the 12 steps because you see they work. And the answers are within me. Many things have happened to me in the last uh, few years. When I was born, we'll start with that, I weighed 3 pounds. And the orthopedic surgeon said there was no way that I could ever walk. In fact, doctors today say there's no way I can ever walk. (laughs) I just didn't know that I couldn't walk. And when I was two months old, I weighed weighed five pounds and I was seven inches long. When I was four months old, I weighed eight pounds and I was ten inches long. The reason I know these facts is because within the last several years I've written an autobiography which I think will be published within the next year and the name of it is the short and tall of it I didn't um, I learned to walk I, I just walked only I was just half as big as everybody else because where, my, where your knees are is where my feet are I'm just little bitty now, it was a tough world out there, and I went to school and I, I played, I learned to ride a bicycle, I learned to ride a tricycle, I uh, had friends, and, but it was a tough world because I was, I was different. And I had something during those, those early years that allowed me to survive, and I just said, piss on them. <laughs>
1: say that sometimes. <laughs>
0: when I was a junior in college, I was three foot ten inches high and I had to use a, a stool to reach the chemistry tables and I couldn't couldn't see very good. And through a series of things I won't go into here, I was in contact with a, a German limb maker in Kansas City and in about six months I walked in him to his shop one night and I was 3 foot 10 and when I walked out I was 5 foot 8 and it, I was just like meeting the world on tiptoe. now the thing that, that has happened is that I've made the circle I bought the suggestion that when I got my legs that I would, it would make me different but you see it didn't and the last paragraph in my book goes like this you see it doesn't matter anymore whether I'm short or tall because I found a dimension of living that goes beyond my physical appearance or the material world. The day may come when I may no longer be able to physically operate my legs, but I know that God, life, holds for me everything I need to do in order to, to handle that. And of all the people in the whole world, I am the most richly blessed. And I now can go with my legs or without my legs. I'm a I'm, I'm still three foot 10 and I can still get around, say. And I'm like, "Where is it cleaning under beds?"
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and if I want to be tall so I can see across this pro- podium, I can put my legs on. And so I, I, I'm, uh, I love the two worlds that I live in. And I, I wear my legs when it's appropriate, and when it's not, I don't wear them. And I like that. I'd always wanted to fly. But I didn't, my, my feet just couldn't reach the pedals. <laughs> so I didn't think I could ever fly, but I, read, I took aeronautics in high school and I read all the flying books and I thought Lin, Lindbergh was my hero. And in about 1971 or 2, Neil and I had gone to Rock Springs, Wyoming, and we, had, we, we were driving. On the way back, I said, boy, I wish we could fly. He said, why don't we? The next morning we went down to the bank and we borrowed money we didn't have to buy a plane. We couldn't fly.
1: <laughs>
0: the banker didn't even ask us if we could fly the plane before he loaned us the money. To fly. <laughs> so I started taking flying lessons. And uh, about six months later, I got a, my private license. And two years later, I got an instrument rating. And I have about 1,800 flying hours now. But it was like an hour and meeting. I'd go out for my lesson, and my instructor would say, Donna, remember. If you ever get in trouble, power will always get you out of trouble it 's just like Alanon
1: <laughs>
0: He also said that if you follow the numbers, you won 't get in trouble and if i, I it's not that i won 't get in trouble, but i 'll have the tools to to respond appropriately to what 's going on in my life and isn 't that what it 's all about to be able to to march through conflict, to be able to handle. Whatever is going on out there with some degree of peace and poise and serenity, isn't that a promise that's in the big book? It said we we will be able to handle situations intuitively that used to baffle us and we will be able to match calamity with serenity. It's a promise, you know. So we have the tools. I have the tools if I'm willing to use them. I also found out from flying that I was conditioned to be uh, by what other people thought of me. I'd be coming in for a landing, and I knew all the guys at the airport were watching. Will she or won't she make it down this time? (laughs) They have bets on me. And I knew they were watching, and... I was thinking about what they were thinking about my landing. And I knew I couldn't do it that way. I couldn't do it that way. I also found that when I'm now, when I'm uncomfortable or when I'm ill at ease or when I'm in pain, that I'm thinking about what someone else is thinking about me. And my hands got sweaty before I came up here, so I know I I haven't overcome that yet. I'm freer than I used to be. I know that that it's nice for y'all to like me, and I I want you to like me. But if you don't see it, it, my well-being is not contingent on whether you like me or not. And that's a great freedom. I also learned from flying that that, uh, everything that I did was a learned reflex action. It had to become a pattern. The only thing that comes instinctively to a pilot in learning to fly is that a pilot will not fly it into the ground. That's the only thing that comes, my instinct.
1: <laughs>
0: the rest of it you learn. One small little operation, one little procedure at a time. And when I started learning to fly, I had a death grip on the wheel and my Instructor said, it's a beautiful day, I'd lose a thousand feet. Just like that. I couldn't concentrate. I had learned one thing after, one, one habit after another until it became a sequence. Well, I finally learned to, I could fly at 12,000 feet. I could hold altitude. I could hold a heading. I could talk to the uh, radar control. I could visit with the person sitting next to me, and I could do a manicure all at the same time. <laughs> And seeing now what the program says, somewhere in the, uh, in the literature says, by off repeating these habits, they become hit habitual, and the help rendered becomes natural to us. So little by little, I, I create, I, I practice good habits of thinking and acting and doing and being and feeling, and then they become habitual, and the help rendered becomes natural then. I also learned from flying that there is a fantastic instrument guidance system out there that I cannot touch or see or feel, and all I have to do is to plug into it. And when I plug into it in, my, in the airplane and I watch the, the instruments, those instruments have information that I interpret in my head, and if I'm a little bit off course, I make an adjustment and I get back on course. And I know if I, if I follow that guidance and make the adjustments, that when I break out from the clouds, that runway is going to be right in front of me. And they're going to say, Donald Lancaster, you're cleared to land. And you see, I, I know that there is a, an instrument guidance system available to me. I, I don't understand it. There's no way I can figure it out. There's no way I can tell you about it. That somehow tells me when I'm off course and gives me the, the guidance and the, that I need to, to stay right on course. I love flying. And I'm at a place in my life where I, I don't have a plane today, but I'm, I'm working and within six months or nine months I, I'm, I'm hoping to have a plane again because I was born to fly. The freedom that I, I experience and every time I push the power in, and I move down the runway, and w- and we just lift off. There's a feeling that everything is okay. There's a peace and a, a a feeling of comfort that makes everything okay in my world, and I love it. Two years ago last June, I became aware aware that. Things were sick at our home. They'd been that way for a long time, and I, I shifted with the illness, and I, did, I was not aware of, of, of what was going on. Five years before, I'd gone to a marriage, marriage counselor, and the counselor told me at that time to, to get a divorce, and I just couldn't do it. I was married to a, a precious, loving sensitive, warm, gentle person and I could not leave the marriage. About two and a half years ago I realized that I I just couldn't do it anymore. And so in October a year ago, two years ago, I I filed for divorce. And in December 14th of that year our divorce was final. And two weeks later Neil died. I really knew he would make it. I wanted him to make it so badly. And I probably loved him and supported him more those last few months than I had for a long time. But I I knew he would make it. I talked to him and I would encourage him and I would pray for him and I I, would—I just knew he'd be okay. And he was okay with the divorce. There wasn't any problem with that. There was never a cross word about it. I uh, went into a devastating guilt trip. I felt like, and this was really ego, that I had killed him. And since I was so spiritual, God should have told me that God near was going to die, and I was madder than hell. I was angry at God, and I was angry at myself. I was angry at life. And so one day, I took a tennis racket and a pillow, and I told God everything I'd want everyone to tell him. And I was mad. and when I got through I felt empty but free because I you know what I realized there was no God out there someplace in the sky who answered my prayers or who reward, rewarded me when I was good or pu- punished me when I failed to measure up and if that is the only kind of God there was then there was no God for me and so I said okay what's real and what's not real because I was desperate to find something that had reality and I looked at the past and it wasn't real it only had reality in my mind And everything that happened was, it's only the way I remembered it, which may not have even been real. Memory is an illusion. And I looked at the future and it wasn't real either. There's nothing there. It was empty. And so I looked at right now and I said, what's real right
1: now? and I touched my
0: skin and I found it warm and I felt my heart beat and I felt my lungs breathe and I listened to the birds sing and I thought who is it that hears and I could look over beautiful Lake Whitney where I live and I thought who takes those gorgeous color pictures hundreds of millions of them every day Who's a photographer? And then I knew that presence lives inside of me. And if that presence is in me, it's also in you. you see, we're really special. There's something about each one of us that is so special. And yet we go around and we put ourselves down and we punish ourselves and we feel guilty and we we think we're not good enough and we think we're this and we think we're that and we can't do this and we can't do that. And yet there's something inside of each one of us that is inexpressible and powerful and unlimited and loving that makes us whole and free and happy. Neil and I came to the first Fountainhead Convention 11 years ago. And we came to several after that. And it's nice to be back. I'm okay with me now. You see, it's been a tough two years. But when I I know that God is life, something that my finite mind could not understand and just leave it there there's life in you and there's life in me there's life everywhere we live and move and have our being in life my whole concept of God just went and expanded and enlarged made it real I'm not afraid anymore I don't know where I'm going I don't know what I'm going to do with my life I have no really goals I have no plans
1: it
0: really doesn't really make any difference see? because I know that right now today is all I've got and with the program the steps and the people who have loved me well the last few few months and a few years, and they have opened their arms to me. I know it's going to be okay. I want to thank you for letting me be here this weekend. I want to thank you for loving me anyway. May the road rise to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the rains fall gently on your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand.
1: God bless you and I love you.